You're listening to another episode of A Lady and Some Dudes Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of A Lady and Some Dudes Podcast. We are going to jump right into our show and start with our grateful moment. Philip, what are you grateful for this week? Hey, good morning, everyone, and good day and good evening where you are listening to this podcast. I'm grateful for another day. Um, I'm grateful for my oldest daughter, who's a senior year. I get to spend a little extra time with her, and it's that realization that she's going to leave me soon, and our guest kind of helped me through that, has helped me through that, too. I can't believe she's about to go off to college in in next year this time, so I'm grateful to see my baby. Thank you. Evan, what are you grateful for? Grateful because, um, you know, during this COVID-19 situation at our church, we've been trying to figure out how to do some things. And, 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 and this is a, a pump up to Phil. Uh, he, uh, he and his wife did a uh, marriage ministry a conversation about uh, money and COVID-19, how to manage your money. Uh, and so, it's, you know, it's a, right step, it's a step in the right direction as we continue to get our leadership together. Uh, compared to how to still do ministry in the digital age. Very nice. Calvin, what about you? What are you grateful for? What's going on, everybody? I am so grateful. Uh, my birthday was this past week, big three six. So, you know, I had some good cakes, some ice cream. My family came over. I'm just blessed, man. I'm so happy. I'm grateful. That's amazing. And happy birthday again, Calvin. Appreciate it. I'm still celebrating. That's right. <laughs> you have the whole month to celebrate. And Tamika, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for a number of things, but uh, mainly for health. Uh, grateful for my health, the health of my family, uh, that no one is sick, no one is suffering um, in, in my immediate family and extended family. I'm also grateful for the opportunity to reflect. Um, being shut in or during this time, um, things slow down tremendously for my family and myself. So it, it gives you an opportunity to reflect, um, have those um, morning and evening conversations with, um, with God and, and have an opportunity to, to really slow down and settle your mind and be at peace. That is amazing. And a pause for reflection is always great and necessary. I am grateful for, whew, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for a lot of things. Um, in the same vein as what Tamika mentioned, I'm grateful for health. And while I'm healthy, um, I'm grateful for my dad's health. Um, he is a general manager for the MTA, that's New York City's um, transportation system. And since COVID started, um, my dad, by the nature of his job, has been on the front lines. He didn't have a break. Um, he's been juggling working from home, still having to deal with logistical issues with respect to the buses. And I can say that he has been safe since March. Um, I'm truly, truly grateful for that. I have, I have been concerned this whole time about my dad having to work during COVID. And if you're not aware in New York, it was really bad. Um, for the first couple of months. So 
I'm just grateful for God's protection over his life, as well as my family that's in New York as well. So we're going to jump right into our interview, and we have an amazing guest on with us today. You guys are in for a real treat. We have Tamika Sweeney. Um, she's a former professional athlete. She played basketball in Sweden for about two years after graduating from UNC Charlotte. As a standout collegiate athlete at UNC, um, she served as the vice president of the NCAA Student Athletic Council, representing her university and conference um, in her senior year. She is a native New Yorker, shout out to New York. She is a Knicks fan, she's a Giants fan, and she is a Mets fan. So she is New York through and through. Um, she was an all-county and Long Island player while playing basketball at Roosevelt High School and St. Mary's High School. As a senior, she ranked as one of the top five best high school players in New York State. And if you know anything about New York, if you're ranking at the top of anything, you are elite because we only create elite talent. Not only has she won conference and state titles, she played for the AAU for Christ the King New York Liberty Bells with former teammate, basketball Hall of Famer and University of Tennessee legend, Shamik Holsclaw. She is the great niece of the late NFL Hall of Famer tight end, John Mackey. Tamika, welcome. We are so excited to have you um, on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm honored, I'm honored to be here. Good, good. So um, how are you? And tell our listeners just a little bit about you, a little bit about your background, if you wanted to add to the introduction or anything I said, um, just so our listeners have a context for who you are. Um, I'm a huge family person. I come from a large family um, with roots seated deeply in um, the town of Hempstead, which is a township in Long Island. Um, I know my last name is McSweeney now, but I am, I was formerly Mackie and um, have a core or deep responsibility and commitment to, to youth. Um, my passion is around inspiring and helping um, younger generations realize their potential and um, their abilities and encouraging them to pursue um, opportunities. Great. We appreciate that. And we, we, I know your work, what you have done. Um, just to say, uh, Tamika took the liberty of taking my daughter, who went from two points a game, high school basketball, to 14, 15, and even winning um, off of, Offensive Player of the Year. So I know her dedication and passion. And that brings me to my question about playing basketball in New York City. How was that? And how did you find that passion for basketball? Was it something in the family? Because you're um, late, your uncle was a Hall of Famer. Um, so what's that passion for basketball came from or any sports during that time? Um, so before basketball, I was a ballerina. <laughs> Believe it or not, I, I was a ballerina and my mom put me in ballet and tap. And I really, um, I enjoyed those things. So I enjoyed dance a lot but it, it wasn't something that really stuck. If you ask my father, 
he will say it's from him taking me to the park at a very, very early age. Uh, I think about the age of nine months and, and watching him play after um, he took his computer classes um, in school. So he exposed me very, very early to the sport. Um, but my passion uh, came in, in fourth grade. Um, I was playing for a, a small school, um, Catholic school on Long Island, Queen of the Most Holy Rosary. Um, the church is still there, but the school is not. And I had a, um, my mom actually, for the first time, like volunteered to step up and coach. Um, very early on, my dad didn't come to, I mean, he came to games, but he really wasn't involved in, um, other than just showing up for the games and, and fourth grade basketball, fourth grade girls basketball is very um, interesting to watch. <laughs> Watching young women learn the game, young girls learn the game for the first time is, let me just say this, there's not a lot of high scoring, there's not a lot of points, it's a lot of energy and a lot of passion. So I would say um, when my mom took an interest and um, in coaching um, and being an assistant coach for the team, uh, it really inspired me to stick with it. In dance, she would just, you know, drop me off, prepare me for recitals, do my hair, um, put on a little bit of makeup they would allow us to, to wear, um, to perform. But um, she really took an interest um, in, in that particular sport um, not that she played because she she didn't play in high school but she she was excited about me wanting to try out and 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 do it and she wanted to be a support there so um, that's where my um, passion began as I said my father would probably argue my passion started at nine months but um, from what I can remember that's when my passion started for basketball so speaking of the, you know, the basketball culture, you know, New York uh, basketball culture is, is something of legend. You know, you hear stories of uh, Dr. J playing at the Rucker and things of that nature. But uh, on the it was also the from Roosevelt, I might add. Oh, Dr. Really? J okay. is from Roosevelt. So. <laughs> okay. So as a player, where do you think you fit into that New York basketball scene? Um. From a team aspect, um, definitely 1994 to 95, um, there was a, a lot of competition, um, public high school and private high school, but more so in the private high school scene because um, in private school, in New York, you have, if you're familiar, your school is ranked by size, right? So you have a class A, a class, class A meaning the larger populated schools, Class B would be secondary, and then you have your, your Class C, sort of, you know, ranked by population. And you have your championships by, pop, by private and public by population, and then you have an overall state championship, which usually happens in Marist or somewhere upstate New York. Um, so competitively speaking, the teams that I have been a part of, um, not me individually, but just the teams that I've been a part of and the teams, the success that, that we've had, um, we're, we're definitely uh, ranked as teams of, of note, not only for, for private, but also um, for, the, for the public school scene. So I am 
um, really have been honored to to come before or be predecessors of folks like um, um, Sue Bird, who's from Syosset, Long, Syosset, Long Island, right? Um, Shamiqua Holsclaw, Queensbridge. Um, so I've had the opportunity um, to compete and also play with um, those individuals. It's Kelvin here. Um, my question would be, when, when did you realize that you were actually good? It's always that moment when uh, you're playing basketball and sometimes you're just playing for fun. You're playing with your, your peers, your friends, your family, and then it clicks like, yeah, I can actually, you know, make something of this. What was that moment for you? Um, my moment where it, it was always fun. So that's the most important thing. I never not had fun. Like if it ever became not fun, I, I think parents today put a lot of pressure on their kids yeah. and they make it not fun. And that's the first thing, like th that's the first thing in fostering a love of the game. It has to be fun. Um, my jump to success was, I remember learning how to shoot a layup, learning how to hit the bat. Like I remember those things to this day. My father taking me to Centennial Park in Roosevelt, off Babylon Turnpike, in the snow, like saying, this is how you do a layup. And it's not that he forced me to go. I wanted to go, right? Because by that point, by fifth grade and sixth grade, I had a love of the game. I just wanted to get better. I didn't realize that I was, um, when I realized I was pretty good, because I was always, um, there was always a, a critique, you could always get better. I realized I was pretty good when one year, I think it was um, my seventh grade year, the summer of my seventh grade year before I went to eighth grade, um, I was playing, it, they, Centennial Park had um, a Budweiser sponsored it, but it was like a summer um, summer splash or summer games, like rec games, and they would have college players playing them. And for the first year, they had women that were, they had a women's team or women's league, right? A former um, college athletes, um, older women, and I was asked to actually play. And I was like, whoa, okay. And when I realized that I could score and rebound and deliver and play with those women, right? Because mind you, I'm a skinny 120 pound, Linky, thirteen-year-old girl, you know, young girl, and I was playing and holding my own against twenty-two to thirty-year-old women. Um, that's when I realized um, I had um, potential, or hey, I could be, I could be pretty good. <laughs> awesome. And being a native New Yorker myself and having a bit of a rough transition to the South, I would say, for a variety of reasons, um, what went into your decision um, to attending and playing for UNC Charlotte? Um, UNC Charlotte was ideally not my first choice. I would say Clemson was my first choice. Clemson was um, heavily recruiting me at the time. Um, I had a really great or really good AU coach. I had a decent high school coach, but I had a really great AU coach. 
who's still alive to this day, former New York Transit police officer, coach for Christ the King for many, many years, Vincent Canizaro, um, affectionately known as Vinny. And um, he had a number of um, elite players that played at Christ the King. Um, Keisha Mithatton, who was from Suffolk in Long Island, who traveled all the way to Queens to play for him. Um, this would come to mind. And I just recall her going on a visit there and Vinny having interactions with that head coach. And he spoke very highly um, of the program and of the coach there. And that was somebody um, that I um, trusted, my parents trusted, my parents respected, we respected. So he had good things to say. And then it came down to um, the visits, right? in college or before you go to college, you have the opportunity to take official or unofficial visits to campuses. And um, you have a chance to interact with the team, interact with, you know, what campus life is going to be like, um, get a feel for the players on the team, um, where you're going to have an opportunity to play. Um, because a lot of times, believe it or not, coming in as a freshman, you may not have an opportunity to play, especially if there's a senior or a junior in front of you. Um, you still have to learn the system. You have to build your body. Collegiate game's a bit different um, in terms of just strength and athleticism. Like, it's fine to be athletic, but, you know, there's also a strength factor um, that plays into that and just maturity. So I definitely wanted to go somewhere where I could step in and play as a freshman and get minutes, right? So that was something that was top of mind for me. Um, the school had to have my major um, and um, have a path for me to, um, an education path, right? That's important. But um, when I took the visit, um, and believe it or not, UNC Charlotte, I didn't even take an official visit. I took an unofficial visit. So unofficial means they don't pay for everything. Like you kind of get there, um, you pay for, you may, they may reimburse you for gas or meals, but you don't stay in a hotel on their dime, that type of thing. Um, you know, you may go to some games and activities and a lot of colleges will want you to come, especially um, if it's a basketball school, they want you to come during like um, what they call um, uh, the the October practice period, right? So midnight madness is what they refer to it as, the kickoff of the season officially when they can start practicing. So you get an opportunity to see them practice, um, see other things. What I noted about UNC Charlotte, it was um, very welcoming. I like I like the players. Um, in particular, I had an opportunity to interact with the young woman um, who is now a, a realtor and a mortgage broker. I'm very successful, I might add. Also played for, for Washington, um, the WNBA team in Washington, um, Marquita Aldridge. Um, she had a, uh, from Michigan, um, and she had a, a, a positive impact on me immediately. Um, she disclosed that they go to church on Sunday, which is something I'm very familiar with. Um, coming from um, a Christian background. Um, she talked about, you know, the fact that at the time, UNC Charlotte didn't have a football team. So basketball was it. Um, that was important. So the school was really invested in their basketball programs. Um, at the time, Clemson, they weren't where they were now, right? But the focus at that university was very much so football. Basketball was not 
you know, a primary focus. And the head coach spent a lot of time with me um, that may not may or may not happen very often when you're recruited. It's important that it does because this is the person that your parents are entrusting you to for your four years or five years, however long you're going to be there. Um, but I noticed most indefinitely, um, which was a turnoff for Clemson to me, I didn't get much time with the with the head coach. Um, so that was a, um, a detractor for me. Um, I did spend time with him, but I didn't spend very much time with him. So I didn't, like, so you have to think about if you go to this school, and this is essentially going to be your family away from your family, um, is this the family you want to be a part of? You know, and I just didn't feel that connection. I did visit, um, I took in-house visits for from over like, and, and when I say in-house, they come to your house and try to convince you to take an official visit, right? That's their pitch. They're going through their pitch. Um, I took probably about 13 visits in-house. So after, after, you know, after number six, they all kind of sound similar. Um, and it's about them getting you excited to want to take a visit. And when it came down to it, it, it just, um, from the coaching staff to the players, to the fact that basketball was a priority for the school and the university, that was where I wanted to be. Cool. Cool. My question is, what was the highlight of your collegiate career? What was some of your highlights and some, what was the low point? Being the University of Alabama, who ranked number four in the nation at the time, um, had a really, really strong team. Um, Shalonda McGinnis, Dominique Willis from Chicago, like had a lot of just um, WNBA and ABL players um, before the WNBA came along. Um, just really strong team, um, fairly cocky, I would say. Like, I'll give you an example, um, and, and this is what I tell my team, like, anybody can be anybody on any given day. You just, you, you have to come out and execute, right? So um, anytime you go to play or you're on the road, um, so to speak, to play, you have shoot around and practice. Um, they felt like, you know, it's UNC Charlotte, we're going to skip practice. So they didn't even hold a practice, right? We held, we gave them Halton oh, Arena. No. We said, here are your practice times. They didn't come to practice. And they didn't come to shoot around. They went to the mall. They went to South Park Mall. Oh, wow. Before the game. And we came out and um, we weren't intimidated. Um, we were insulted and to be that is in the school's history that is probably actually that's the highest ranked team the school has ever beat men or women um, when we beat the University of Alabama and that was and they had a, a championship like contender um, team like they could win the NCAAs that year um, that's how strong they were <laughs> and, and and they got um, annihilated. Um, probably my lowest point was um, my my junior year I had um, 
an emergency tonsillectomy. I got really sick. And I had a horrible, we had been on the road. Um, and that's why it's so important for athletes to understand, um, to take it seriously, like taking care of their body, taking vitamins, being healthy, eating the right things. Um, because the season, you're going to play upwards of 30 games, potentially 32 games. And it's a lot on your body to travel, study, travel, practice. Um, and at that time, uh, my immune system was really worn down and I had gotten sick. I got strep throat. I knew something was wrong because I had the worst game I could possibly have against the University of Memphis. I had nine turnovers. That's just like nine turnovers and half of them they scored on. So I gave away 10 points, had nine turnovers. It was like horrible. And I didn't realize how sick I really was. And um, got back to campus. We had a small break. Um, got really, really sick and had to have an emergency tonsillectomy. Um, I missed playing the University of South Carolina. Like I missed several games. So I was um, sick, missed games, had a terrible start. And it was like, I didn't even come back or start working my way back until like conference tournament time. And at this time it was like January, right? And it, anything about college basketball, February, you're working towards like conference play and trying to place for conference and being, you know, ranked in the conference and, and getting to the, cause obviously if you win your conference, it's an automatic conference. USA was an automatic bid for, bid for us. So um, that was probably one of my lowest points. Um, from a basketball, like just college athlete perspective. So being a student athlete is kind of like a unique setup, right? Because, you know, some people, when they think about it, like, we even have this debate now with sports, we, we say, you know, well, I don't say that, but I know a lot of people say athletes get a free tuition, they get a free ride, why they complain, why they, you know, why they deserve to get paid. Uh, would you consider yourself more of a student or more of an athlete during your time at UNCC? Um, it, it's fluctuated. Um, so definitely during the season, I felt like more of an athlete than I did a student. And um, after the season or in preseason, um, I was more of a student rather than an athlete. Um, you definitely, um, you do have, um, I will say this, being an athlete, you do get opportunities for support. Like there are a lot of opportunities for support. They do not leave you on your own. Your schedule's pretty much planned. So time management is less of a challenge for a student athlete, I believe, um, than a regular student because your your day or your 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 classes are around your practice times, right? Obviously, there if you have a class and, and there's practice, they're not gonna make you miss class for practice. That just wasn't something that UNC Charlotte believed in or did. But for the most part, that just meant you had a five o'clock, five, 5 a.m. practice versus versus a two o'clock practice. <laughs> um, you know, they would work the team around that. But for the most part, I would say um, it fluctuated definitely. Um, if you didn't have the grades, obviously you couldn't play. Um, so um, there was definitely an, an incentive there. You would be on academic probation or suspension. Um, so from 
my perspective, it, it just depended upon where you were in the year. Um, definitely in the middle of the season, like right after Thanksgiving, it gets into the thick of it. Like you're playing twice a week. Um, and that can include travel. So when you're in an airport, potentially twice a week or three times a week, um, it can feel more like more of an, an athletic obligation than a student. But um, it, it definitely, I never lost sight of the fact that I, I had to graduate. Amiga, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to connect some dots. Did you, did you, uh, I remember my, one of my buddies played down at UNC Charlotte. Uh, you remember a guy named Sean Colson? Yes, I did. Sean, I was, when Sean Colson came there, I was a junior. He was there for two years with okay. Jamarco Johnson, Calvin Price. So yes, I do know Sean very well. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Now my question kind of along the men and women. Did you notice a difference between the treatment of the men's basketball team versus the women's basketball team, whether it's money, gym time, media coverage? Was it a big difference that was noticeable? Of course. <laughs> um, well, and, 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 and the level of notoriety was, um, was then too. Like, so when Sean and, DeMarco and Diego Guevara and Calvin Price and that whole team. I, I think they that year they made it to they lost to UNC um, second round of the NCAA champion, championships. But they had a very strong year. Like they had a great year. They beat Cincinnati um, with Patterson and, and Kenya Martin. So they had like every, the the gym was packed. They brought in dollars right to the to the school and notoriety just from the schedule that they played and and what they were able to accomplish there was um they did have preferential um gym time so like we we did practice around when they had to practice um and sometimes we didn't get Halton Arena. We would have to, if you're familiar with UNC Charlotte's campus, the belt gym is nothing like what it looked like when I played there. The first two years of my college career, we played our games and practice, everybody in the belt gym. And then the men's program would play at Bojangles Arena, right? Because the belt gym just couldn't hold the amount of people that were was necessary. So they would um, rent out they would be at the Bojangles Coliseum, which is now the Bojangles Coliseum. It was something else back then. Mm -hmm. So we did, um, the men's program did have preferential treatment um, in terms of just their per diem was higher. Um, presumably they ate more <laughs> than we did. Um, their per diem was higher. Um, they did have preferential gym time, but I will say, um, that they were um, supportive of the women's program. So they came to our games. So they would show up at our games. Nice. They would cheer for us. Um, um, their coach, um, co well, Coach Lutz was an assistant at the time, but he showed up at our games and we had big games, a rival in rival or in school rivalries. Um, they were, we hung out together um, we hosted recruits together, so it wasn't um, as noticeable because we, we shared um, the basketball apartment, so to speak, from a program perspective or athletic perspective. Um, 
we shared some of the same um, apartment spaces. So not living together, but let's say, um, for example, I lived when I was there, I lived in an apartment in Elm Hall with all, with my teammates, right? So there would be presumably uh, a women's apartment in Elm Hall and a men's apartment in Elm Hall that would be upstairs or two floors up. So we, we interacted like a, a family. And obviously we came to their games and supported and cheered for them. So that made it a little bit easier to take mm -hmm. um, because we were so close and we did study halls together when we were in, in town together. So our study hall times were exactly the same. Our counselors, our academic athletic counselors were the same folks. And we had classes together in some, on some occasions, so. Nice. So was Sean a jerk? Jerk for the record? Was he all right? <laughs> no, he was cocky. He was not a jerk. He was definitely a true point guard. Um, I never. He was. He was never a jerk. Um, he was. He was really good person. Um, Philly, of course. <laughs> Philly all day. Um, <laughs> and 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 had that Philly swag, but he was not a jerk. He was a great person. Cool, cool. Um, it's funny you say that because every week I have to deal with at least two Philly guys on my team. Slow down, and, slow down. <laughs> they are amazing, but you know how those Philly people are. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> so transitioning a little bit from your collegiate experience, um, I want to talk a little bit about your experience um, when you played in Sweden. Mm -hmm. um, you played in Sweden for approximately two years. How different is basketball over there than basketball over here in the United States? Or is it pretty much the same? Are the mentalities the same? Is the effort the same? How would you compare the two? Um, it's not the same. It's different. Um, they are, um, so playing in a Euro League at any level, um, and they have divisions there just like we have divisions here. Um, and being on a Nordic continent, it's different. So I would say, I would caveat this by saying it depends on where you go. And it depends on what level you're playing at right what level you're playing at um like depending upon in terms of the game when i played there it was different like there was a lot of the euro which be considered a a walk <laughs> um before now right um back then it was like are you walking or so um the game is slower um they have more of a team-oriented concept um, in terms of just passing, and they're really um, students of the game. So it's, and when I say students of the game, they have like basketball schools <laughs> over there. Where you, you go there, you go to basketball. So like, who ever heard of that? When I grew up, you, you played school at, you played basketball at school, but school was school. It wasn't centered around basketball. And then you played on the weekends and you got your time in, right? You just played because you loved it and, and not as a school aspect. So um, that's different. 
and and they are in love with um at the time they were just in, enthralled and in love with everything american like every and anything that was american um at the time alan iverson was huge right everybody wanted to be that guy right everybody wanted to be him or kobe or you know uh, or, or that type of that type of mentality so they um love western basketball um i think we play more freely i think we um i think in just in terms of it's more intuitive um americans are, are just a little bit more we're a little bit more creative in terms of you know the swag and the, the sauce we brought to the game but um that that was the major difference the game was slower and it was um, more robotic. I, I don't like to say robotic, but it was almost mechanical. It was very, everything was very planned and thought out. Um, there wasn't a lot of improv. I hope That's that gives you a picture. <laughs> yeah, it does give us a picture. Um, <laughs> I'm still wondering how the slow athletes are able to get to what they get, need to get to, like Luca and, um, <laughs> and Joker. How are they so slow and still? But I guess I have a conversation later about that. My They're very fundamentally sound. <laughs> fundamentally, right. fundamentals is very important in, in mm. the European game. The fundamentally, they, they produce fundamentally sound athletes. Which we can see. My question is, how did you end up, after your career for a collegiate level was ending, how did you end up going overseas and how was that process? Um, so I went to a combine uh, that was designed for the WNBA. Um, at the time, it was the when I graduated, it was the ABL and the WNBA was just getting started with swoops and and bringing players back. It was the American League Basketball League at the time. Um, so I went to a combine, went to a couple of combines, had a really good friend who had played at the club before me. Um, you probably know her name. Um, she is like in Nate Smith Hall of Famer, um, Kanika Drakeford. Um, she played at um, Johnson C. Smith. She, that's where she graduated from, but she originally started at University of Virginia. Um, so that was, um, we worked out together, been at a, to a couple of combines, and um, we, we hooked up under the same agent. Um, so to speak, he wanted to sign me. He said, you know, you got prospects, he had connects. He said, these are the countries. At the time she was leaving there and she was going to Israel to play. And um, they needed someone to replace her scoring um, and her ability there. So um, got my contract there um, initially um, that way, just, you know, going to comp, be, being invited to different combines, um, gotten some really good looks and then um, when the opportunity presented itself um, I was ready you know I tell people all the time you have to stay ready um, because it was a lull in between the time me in between when I left to go over there and me getting that contract and just working like I had a I was working out but had a regular job um, still working out still playing um just waiting on my opportunity still getting up going to the gym lifting weights um playing pickup working on my game training 
So that's how that happened. So what was, I guess, the – I know you talked about it's a very analytical game, but what was the fan environment like during games? Oh, it was so much better. Okay. It was so much better, especially for women. It was so much better. Painted faces, signs, um, bobblehead. Like, it was – they loved us. Um, Giannis, our um, uh, owner – he was, he was so um, interesting. He was, he loved the game of basketball, had never played, didn't speak a word of English. He was 80 years old and rode a bike to the club every day. Like he rode his bike every day. He was such in good shape. He was just, he was like your grandpa. And he was so supportive of the women's program. He had, it was a men's team and a women's team. We were supported by the nuclear company there. Um, and it was, he was the owner or the general manager of the teams. And he was amazing. Like, he was like your grandfather. He was, and, and the fans, they, they were full. The, the bleachers were full all the time. They had so much excitement. They brought the kids out. Um, we did kids clinics before games sometimes. So it was really, it was really um, great to receive that type of love. Tamika, why you, why do you think it's so different in terms of, you know, I, I know a lot of uh, women that, that uh, go abroad to play basketball. Um, and that's like way more popular overseas than it is here. What's the difference in the culture and why is it more, um, you know, dominant overseas and here in the States? So the difference between the, the culture of why women um, do so well over there and there's so many teams um, that are embracing women, um, rather it be in Russia, Israel, Sweden, um, what have you, their, their collegiate system is very different from what we have here. Um, they do have basketball schools that go up through what you would consider a college, um, but they don't really have the college sports that we have here. Um, so there's a bigger base. Um, a lot of these clubs are in very tight knit, small local communities. There's really nothing, no entertainment, you know, they don't have super pop stars that are traveling there, um, to host, um, um, concerts, etc. It, it's, um, it's a matter, it's an entertainment value. Um, for them to see, just to see them compete. Now, let's be, I'll, I'll be clear. Hockey is definitely the staple sport in Sweden. So hockey is like their football, the NFL for them, right? And there are a lot of Swedish hockey players that come to the United States and that are professional. Like that's their, their sport of choice. And then I would say soccer and then basketball. So for them, it would just be the equivalent of a UNC Duke rivalry oh, wow. or you know it, it's just it, it's an opportunity to see people perform and entertain at a very high level and compete it's it's the opportunity to get behind their local team people they see in their community and watch them compete um so that's that's the difference there um I think here in the United States we have so many things so many athletic events that we derive entertainment from there um the spectrum is smaller it's a niche market 
And um, people in that town just want a team to get behind and cheer for um, because there's not a lot of, um, there are not a lot of other competing sports or opportunities there. So that's what I would say um, is the major difference um, there is their, their collegiate system is different. Um, the geography is different um, and just the exposure level and the entertainment value is different for them. Makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. That's, that's very interesting, um, but not surprising. Um, as we wrap up this interview, I, I kind of wanted to talk about what's going on in our current climate with COVID. Um, as you know, life was normal for us up until March of 2020. And um, COVID has changed a lot of dynamics in every aspect of our lives, including sports. Um, so my question for you, should collegiate athletes resume play during this COVID time? And if they do, what precautions, um, in your opinion, should they take? So I definitely, so that's a double-edged sword for me. Um, only because I understand the desire to compete. And last year was so different. And you didn't have an NCAA championship for the first time ever. You didn't have, and I'm speaking from a bat. So I'm speaking from a basketball lens. Let's, let's just be clear, a basketball lens, because that's the only, that's the lens that I can speak from. And I'm speaking from a mother's lens <laughs> as well, because I'm a mom, right? Um, I'm a wife and a mother first. Um, so my 20 year old self would be like, yeah, we're going to get over it and we just need to go out there and compete. And, and that's what I'm here for. And I only have this many years left to compete. And, and why can't we compete? Don't stop us from competing. Um, but holistically, as I reflect on this whole um, pandemic and situation, I do think it's fine. I, I think um, they should be allowed to practice, right? But there's only so much practicing before you want to actually get out there and compete. I think they need it needs to be a healthy, safe environment for them to be able to at least come back to school to practice. Um, right now, I, I think it's too unsafe um, to try to resume play, intercollegiate play, where you're traveling you're exchanging, um, unless you had a situation, the NBA and the WNBA have done very well. They've been able to contain, they do a ton of testing, um, they do everything to keep the athletes isolated, you're in the bubble, um, but for a, from a collegiate standpoint, that's um, impossible. It's almost impossible um, to replicate that high level of discipline and scrutiny. So from a competition standpoint, um, do I think they should be allowed to create a bubble on their campus so that they can resume um, practicing and um, preparing? Yes. Do I think it's too soon to, um, and again, this is from a basketball lens, um, if my son was on the UNC Charlotte's football team or any football team program, I would not feel comfortable um, bringing him to a campus and then saying, go out there and travel and compete. 
Um, I mentioned football because that's the season that's right around the corner. Um, basketball, you have a little bit more time. You can restructure games. You can shorten the season. Hopefully, there'll be opportunities later in the spring. You can restructure the season for the spring and extend it. Um, you have some opportunities there. You have a longer planning period. Um, football's right here, knocking on the door. I, I would not. Um, it's not worth risking your health. And people think that COVID, um, that young people, all young people are recovering from it, or they don't know that they have it. And that's just not the case. I don't think we know enough about the, the virus to make that determination with, with um, certainty. You know, um, is it worth them having compromised lungs or potentially being hospitalized or potentially um, bringing it home or bringing it to other students on campus or potentially um, their coaches um, being impacted? Like they're interacting with coaches. These coaches aren't 20 and these coaches are going home to their families. Their wives, the children, potentially. Is it is it worth? Is the cost of is the entertainment value worth that experience? And and my heart of hearts, I would say no. Now my spirit says, oh my gosh, yes, let these kids compete. But my heart and my brain, as a mother, um, as a mom and a wife, I would not want to expose anybody else's child or have anybody's child because that's somebody's baby. I don't care if they're 20 or 22. That's somebody's baby. They have a mother. They have a father. They have a grandparent. They have family. I would not expose anybody else's baby because they are, they're kids. Um, their frontal lobes aren't fully developed. They're kids. I wouldn't expose anybody else's child or kid to that type of experience. I know survivors of COVID and um, it's just not COVID, like, right? COVID has residual, potential residual after effects. Um, it could com compromise if they have a professional career, it could potentially compromise their professional career, their opportunity to earn um, after it's said and done. So no, I'm not a proponent are resuming as usual. I do think they, um, if if it's safe and they can safely integrate them or bring them back to campus for practice and workouts within the team setting, meaning you you enter the bubble, you're with your team, you're not leaving the bubble to interact with other folks. Um, I think that's okay. But as far as interconference competition, um, travel, it's just not. Uh, we are not in a place as a country um, or these university or these campuses as a pro, as an example, like when you look at UNC's campus, they have 91 kids on campus that, <laughs> that have been exposed and have the virus um, in just two weeks of school. They haven't even finished the month of August and they've already had to shut down. I, I just don't think that these colleges are prepared to safeguard the kids the way they need to be. So no, I'm not a proponent. Absolutely, and, and I agree with you. As an avid sports head myself, as much as I would love to say, you know, let's resume life as normal. Let's get, you know, let's get sports going. Um, I think when you do a cost-benefit analysis, it's not worth the risk. Um, 
Well, before you go, I wanted to give you an opportunity um, to tell our listeners if there's any initiatives, if there's anything you wanted to promote um, that we should put on our radars. Um, let us know. We would love to know how uh, we can support and be a resource. Absolutely. Um, this is more of a parent. <laughs> you would think it would be basketball or um, another initial initiative. Um, I, I just want to say to the parents who are who are out there who have um, a child at home, a teenager at home, um, don't let them get complacent um, at home. Um, I would say integrating or having them integrate some sort of exercise, get out, um, some sort of um, activity into their day is, is highly important. I also think that um, this is a very different time in terms of how they're being taught and, and how they're being um, fed, so to speak. Um, it, it's very different. Um, it can be um, they say, my, my little one says, boring. It's boring. Um, try to integrate. Don't think that just because they're a teenager or they're in middle school that they have it. Um, be sure to continue to engage them uh, mentally. Um, there are resources or additional resources online like um, IXL. That's IXL um, programs that you can subscribe to. Um, to get them additional practice, additional work. Don't be afraid to reach out to these teachers and hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. If you if you notice that you know your child has a particular class, be be engaged. That's what I'm going to say. Be engaged as a parent. Um, don't think because it's online that these kids have got it um, because it is new for them as well. And I encourage every um, parent, caregiver, guardian. Um, I challenge you, sit in on one of those classes. You know what I mean? Um, continue, if you're home and, and, and you're not an essential worker, I get that some people have to have to work. I have to work. But at least once a week, you know, um, show interest, ask them how they're doing, remain engaged as a parent. It's going to be so important. Um, pay attention um, to um, the signs of, you know, just staying in tune with the with your child's or your loved one's mental acuity um, and how they're doing mentally. Um, it, it's extremely important at this time um, because you don't have those um, in-person interactions any longer with school. Um, just continue to, to I, you, I would say you need to be more engaged than you were before. Mm -hmm. That's that, all. Is, that is amazing advice. Um, to the parents out there. Um, thank you so much, Tamika, for coming on, um, for sharing your insight. I really love this interview because I feel like you have a broad base of experience um, in sports that is unique and powerful. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on. We hope we can hear from you and call on you again in the future um, if you have an opportunity to come back on the show. I enjoyed my time here. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of A Lady and Some Dudes. Um, please remember to follow us, like, share. We are on Facebook and Instagram. 
Our Facebook handle is at a lady and that is the and sign, some dudes. Our handle on Instagram is a lady and some dudes. Everything is spelled out. So that's a lady, A and D, some dudes. Until next time.